0: Welcome to Cyclopod, showcasing work by early career geoscientists that is of interest to the cyclostatic community. This podcast is made possible thanks to financial support of the International Subcommission on Timescale Calibration. Welcome to the second episode of Cyclopod. I am your host, David of Leeschauer, and today our guest is Hamdi Omar from the University of Sfax in Tunisia. Hamdi is an engineer, but is also a very talented sedimentologist and stratigrapher. Hamdi is here with us today to talk about the Baryasian. You might say, The Baryasian, why do I care about the Baryasian? And that's partly true. No big global mass extinctions or ocean anoxic events in the Baryasian. But there were dinosaurs, of course. However, today we're not going to talk about dinosaurs much. We're going to talk stratigraphy and paleoclimatology, and that's important because the variation is the first stage of the Cretaceous, and the Cretaceous is the only period in the Phanerozoic for which the base has not yet been formally defined with a so-called GSSP, or golden spike. So for those of you who are not yet experienced stratigraphers, the acronym GSSP stands for Global Boundary Stratotype Section and Point, and it refers to a very specific point in a very specific geologic section anywhere on our planet that defines the lower boundary of a stage. And so once a GSSP boundary has been agreed upon in an international commission, a golden spike is literally driven into the geologic section to mark the precise boundary for future geologists. And thus, for the Bariation stage, that International Commission did not yet agree upon a section that could act as the GSSP section. So, Hamdi, very welcome to Cyclopod, and congratulations with your paper on the Bariation that came out in March 2021 in Frontiers in Earth Sciences. You are here to talk about Bariation stratigraphy and climate, but can you remind us, in general terms, what does it take to become a GSSP section?
1: Oh yeah, sure. Uh, you always define the boundary by means of a primary marker. Uh, this marker is usually biostratigraphic marker, uh, so the first or the last appearance of certain fossil. Uh, then a whole list of secondary markers can be added to facilitate correlations of sections that were deposited at the same time in geologic history anywhere in the world to the GSSP section. These secondary markers can be really anything with a stratigraphic meaning, for example, other fossils, carbon isotope excursions, uh, geomagnetic reversals, minerals that can be radiometrically dated, and so on. However, more and more GSSP sections also have a well-studied cyclostratigraphy, and astrochronology has just become a significant component in the integrated stratigraphy of most of these GSSPs. Because, of course, cyclostratigraphy is quite useful in making long distance correlations and to bring more accuracy and precision on their time scales.
0: So, Hamdi, do you think that the section you studied in the paper in central Tunisia would be a good candidate to become the GSSP
1: section for the Jurassic Cretaceous boundary? So, the short answer to your question is no. The section we studied will not become the GSSP. I think the section we studied in the Sid Khalif formation is really wonderful. But you know, David, wonderful is not enough because to become a GSSP, a section should fulfill a set of five strong criteria. And the problem with the city hall information is that it does not score very well with the most basic requirements of those five. Precisely, we are talking about the ammonite and calpionylates biozones that only comprise the lower and the middle variation in the section we studied. Also, the radioisotope dating is very hard to carry out because the Sitahali formation is lacking some dateable levels such as ash beds or bentonite-rich levels. But except these two problems, um, the section actually fulfills the other GSSP requirements. For example, magnetostratigraphy and chemostratigraphy are available, and the lithology is often hemipelagic. Sedimentation also is nearly continuous. And there is no significant change in phases. The outcrop is not affected by tectonic and sedimentary movements uh, or metamorphism. And the outcrop section is also quite accessible to research and utterly free for everyone to access.
0: That's very clear, Hamdi. Thank you. But why is it that the International Commission on Stratigraphy has so far not been successful in defining the variation GSSPs?
1: Well, in fact, um, the GSSP of the variation stage has already been assigned in 2019. There was a vote between a French section and an Italian section. It came out that the French site of Tre section um, it received 80% of the votes and the Italian site of Fiume Bosso received only 20%. So this vote was the result of extensive investigations over a period of about 12 years in order to identify a primary marker and secondary markers for the variation. In those 12 years, more than 60 sites were evaluated worldwide, including our section of the city Khalif formation in central Tunisia. But Tunisia didn't make it uh, onto the, the short list, unfortunately. Anyway, after the vote in 2019, we were very happy at that time because we thought that this GSSP nightmare was finally over. But just a few months later, another Belgian working group released a paper in which they severely criticized the choice for the French Trema section because this candidate section is in terms of paleogeography, it is located on a deep water slope, riddled with successive erosional surfaces and affected by many stratigraphic hiatuses and breccias. So they claim that it does not meet at least four of the five geological requirements for a GSSP. But anyway, we here in Tunisia we are doing our very best to contribute to the solution of this geological riddle. And whatever it costs, I think, hopefully one day we will be able to define this Nari GSSP.
0: So in your paper, you show all these beautiful photos of the outcrop you studied. Can you say a few words about their lithostratigraphy and about the depositional
1: environment? Um, we can say that the city formation is made up essentially by moles, often alternating with limestone beds. But don't think of it as a typical marl limestone alternation. I mean, the lithological rhythm is not present everywhere in the section, so, to carry out cyclostratigraphy, we could not rely on the thickness of more limestone alternations. Moreover, in the previous podcast, Dr. Teresa Nall explained that such alternations are not necessarily the result of orbital forcing. So we have been aware of all that, and we paid much attention to choosing the right proxy that could provide us with insights in a possible Milankovitch imprint. In this case, after making sure that our section is not significantly affected by diagenesis, we used the magnetic susceptibility and carbonate content as main proxy to study these cyclicities. And these proxies are reliable to record the astronomical imprint in this case, because the depositional environment of our study section is a typical hemipelagic system in which the magnetic susceptibility and carbonate content are quite good proxies to trace variations in the trital flux and sea level.
0: That must have been really fantastic fieldwork, taking all those samples. How much time did you spend in the field, actually?
1: I spent about three weeks to sample the entire section. You know, the first days of my field campaign, I started by getting to know the section and the study area. Uh, before sampling, I wanted to be able to recognize stratigraphic limits and ammonite and calpiolinite biozones in the field. You know, that, that was very important because I wanted to have an initial time scale before I get, I, I started the sampling. Um, also, the accessibility to the outcrop is very straightforward for this section. But for other Berberian sections in central Tunisia, the topography is really very severe and pronounced. So no truck or car can go through it. So, so in this case, we had to rely on our feet and climbing the mountains and across valleys, snakes, spiders, wolves, pigs. It's, it's not lions or tigers, of course. <laughs> it's not jungle anyway, but it's full of wild animals that you need to be aware of then we collect the samples and we carry our heavily loaded backpacks to an old and abandoned farm where we also spent the night that, that was really fun you know camping in the wild making wood fire cooking the dinner and enjoying the amazing view of the sky you know in lower latitude we could clearly see the milky way when the weather was fine so I just wanted to say that it was a very nice time, but, but it really took the combination of a good geologist and a good survivor to reach our goals out there. Hamdi, when I was
0: reading through your paper, I noticed that you did a multi-proxy approach. You've been working uh, with magnetic susceptibility, calcium carbonate content, several major elements measured through XRF, but that's now pretty standard, of course, doing a multi-proxy approach. However, you did not only adopt a multi-proxy approach, you also did a multi-method approach. You juxtaposed the results of multi-taper spectral analysis, evolutive harmonic analysis, the time-opt approach, the correlation coefficient approach of Min Song Lee, the average spectral misfit approach. And I really liked that, confronting the results of these different methods. Is there anything you specifically learned by doing that?
1: If there is something that I really learned during my PhD and this work, it would be that relying on one single proxy using one single method is really very dangerous and it may lead you to a naturally wrong result. I'm going to take the tuning of paleoclimate signals as an example. There are two main methods of constructing an astronomical timescale for deep time beyond 50 million years. Either you track a specific orbital frequency in an evolutive power spectrum or you just use bandpass filtering of specific orbital cycle. And both methods have their own merits and limitations as well. For example, the tracking method is sometimes a bit subjective because it's done and tracked manually. On the other hand, bandpass filtering is somewhat subjective as well because there are no universally accepted choices for filter settings. That means that for a beginning cycle like me, it's important to have the help and the training by an experienced cyclostratigrapher. In my case, that was Dr. and Christine Da Silva. She taught me how to overcome these obstacles. And I really consider myself very fortunate for being able to work with her. Because when I compare myself now to myself in 2018, there is a really huge difference. In 2018, I visited Anne Christine in Belgium to learn cyclostratigraphy, and I was integrated in the IGCP 652 project, UNESCO project. And I was able to participate in the annual meetings and attend special courses, workshops, field trips. And thanks to these activities, I started shaping my own profile and I greatly expanded my knowledge in cyclostratigraphy.
0: So, Hamdi, I would like to come back to your main proxies in the paper, magnetic susceptibility and calcium carbonate. Can you brush up my memory as to why magnetic susceptibility is a useful proxy for stratigraphy in this kind of hemipelagic system?
1: So, the magnetic susceptibility quantifies the ability of a sample to be magnetized in response to an external magnetic field. And this response depends mostly on the amount of magnetic minerals in the sample. These minerals are classically carried by the trital input, and the trital input is likely to depend on climate variations between arid and the humid conditions. And of course, we assume that climate variations can be forced by change in the astronomical configuration of the Earth, or the so-called Milankovitch cycles. So in hemipelagic environments, like in our case, magnetic susceptibility fluctuations are often inversely correlated to calcium carbonate content. This is because calcite is a diamagnetic mineral and thus has a slightly negative susceptibility. And in carbonate-rich beds, the iron-bearing magnetic minerals are diluted by the calcite, and that's why we have low susceptibility values in carbonate-rich beds. So to put it simple, magnetic susceptibility fluctuations largely reflect the combination of terrigenous flux and primary productivity. The cool thing is, that both are likely to be influenced by astronomical insulation forcing. and This is why the magnetic susceptibility is often used as a powerful proxy for cyclostratigraphy.
0: So Hamdi, as you might know, I have this little in-between section in the Cyclopod podcast, where I pick out a special number. And today's special number is 2,950. 2,950 US dollars. That is how much it costs to publish an open access paper in Frontiers in Earth Sciences. May I ask you, did you really pay so much money for this publication?
1: Uh, Actually, no. We did not have to pay the total amount of the APC, or what we call the Article Processing Charge. Because at Frontiers... Authors always can ask for financial support from the editorial office. So the discount can be 15%, 30%, 50%, and sometimes even 100%. Moreover, uh, some countries have a special deal with frontiers. So authors from these countries don't have to worry about the fee at all. In our case, we received a discount of 15%. Maybe it was still quite expensive, but... I really think that open access publishing is very important.
0: All right, that's cool. And so how do you evaluate the review process? Were the reviews of um, high quality?
1: Well, yeah, it, it was really quite good and especially fast. And despite the speed, which can make some people suspicious, I don't think that Frontiers is that kind of predatory journal. For example, the payment is upon acceptance, not upfront. Also, the review platform was very well organized and the reviewers were experts in the field. Their comments were very objective and constructive. So I think they handled the manuscript and the peer reviews in a very professional way.
0: So let's go back to the science now. You explained that magnetic susceptibility and calcium carbonate are very strongly anti-correlated in the studied section because detrital minerals that carry the susceptibility signal are diluted in the carbonate-rich beds. Despite this strong correlation, it seems that magnetic susceptibility does a better job at tracking the low frequency cycles, so the eccentricity cycles, but calcium carbonate seems to be better at tracking the high frequency cycle, the precession and obliquity cycles. Do you have any idea why that might be?
1: That's a bit of a naughty question, David. (laughs) Actually, we noticed that also while performing time series analysis, but really, uh, we do not have a clear-cut explanation in the paper. You can clearly see the long centristy cycles in the magnetic susceptibility data. Just by the naked eye, you can count for cycles. But this feature is not observed in the carbonate content signal. It seems like the carbonate content signal is detrended somehow naturally. As I said... We do not have a good explanation or hypothesis to explain that observation, but it seems that carbonate productivity is responding to to the astronomical forcing more directly than the trital flux from the continent. I mean, it seems that the trital flux has some kind of built-in memory in its system, but that's definitely something we need to think about a bit more.
0: That is really cool. And so it is exactly that strong expression of the 405,000 year eccentricity cycles in the magnetic susceptibility data that allowed you to carry out the tuning to the Lascar eccentricity solution. However, I was wondering why did you tune maximine susceptibility into eccentricity maxima and uh, thus carbonate rich beds into eccentricity minima? Do you have any evidence for this phase relationship or in hypothesis as to why the wet-dry climate cycles relate to astronomical
1: forcing? Okay, if you have a look at the evolutionary spectral analysis of the carbonate content series in figure 8, you will see that we have high precession power when magnetic susceptibility is high, especially in cycle E3. This can be nicely seen. And you can also see that we have high obliquity power when magnetic suitability is low, for example, at the transition between cycle E2 and E3. We know that eccentricity is the amplitude modulator of precession, so we can infer that when precession power is high, we are in an an eccentricity maxima and vice versa. Thank you, Hamdi.
0: That's a clear explanation to end this
1: podcast on.
0: So here at this point, I would also like to thank our audience for listening to this second episode of Cyclopod. I really enjoyed talking to Hamdi Omar about his new paper in Frontiers in Earth Sciences and about this multi-proxy, multi-method approach to say something about the stratigraphy and the paleoclimate dynamics of the Barry Really, Hamdi added a whole new layer to our understanding of the paleoclimate evolution of that time. Prior to Hamdi's paper, the only thing we basically knew about climate change in the Southern Tethys was that we went from a relatively dry and cold Jurassic to a more humid Cretaceous. Now, thanks to the work of Hamdi, we better understand the orbital pacing of arid and humid conditions at the eccentricity scale. And so I'm sure that this cyclostratigraphic study from Tunisia will facilitate making global correlations with contemporaneous sections, and who knows, maybe one day also to the Baryasian GSSP section. For more updates and information on cyclostratigraphy, or if you'd like to reach out, please visit us on www.cyclostratigraphy.org. See you later.